There once was a young man who asked a Christian teacher what it took to follow Christ. He was serious about forsaking the world and following Christ, but he didn't know what it looked like. So he asked his teacher, what must I forsake? The teacher replied back, colored clothes for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you're sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is a lie against him who created us and attempt to improve on his work. Now, I hope you think that sounds absurd because being a Christian following Christ is not about any of those things. But that was the answer given at one of the most prominent Christian schools in the second century. It didn't take long before Christianity was reduced to a mere set of rules and regulations. And this can still be the case. Christianity in every generation has had those who would remake the religion in their own image. They would create new rules according to their own desires. They would redraw the circles of spirituality, of course, making sure they were in and others were out. And they would then judge those who were out. So, for example, European Christians after the Reformation never really had a problem with drinking beer or smoking a pipe. Later, though, among American Christians, those would become cardinal sins. You could not be considered godly if you drank or smoked. Conversely, American Christian women were completely fine with wearing makeup even to church. But among many Dutch Christian women, that was an unfathomable sin. And so it goes. The word for this is legalism. We're not talking about those who zealously pursue Christ and his righteousness. We're talking about those who ignore Christ and instead focus on their own man-made system of righteousness. They then take their standard of righteousness and make that the measure of spirituality or, or even salvation. But scripture consistently denounces legalism as a great evil. And Jesus himself reserved his harshest words of rebuke for the legalists of his day. And we are right to continue to reject those who would put us under the burden of the law. And legalism is all about a self-righteousness. It's where keeping the law is seen as a means of becoming righteous, whether that's a man-made law or even God's law. Legalism presents a standard of righteousness and then treats that standard as the means of spirituality. But the whole notion of legalism falls apart When you realize that God demands perfect righteousness and nothing less. He demands not an ounce short of perfection. His law may be a reflection of what that perfect righteousness looks like, but his law doesn't make us righteous. In fact, just the opposite. Because we're fallen sinners, all we do is break his law. I mean, who perfectly obeys? Who perfectly keeps the law? And if you fall short, even just a little, you're you're a transgressor. You're convicted as a transgressor. And failing to live up to the standard of God's perfect righteousness means we all already stand condemned. It's just adding more rules isn't going to change that or help that. It's going to make it worse. We have now more rules, more laws to break, to disobey, to heap up more unrighteousness on our account. So when you come to terms with God's true standard for us, You see how futile legalism is. And the law merely reflects how big of a sin problem we have. What we really need is transformation. 
from the inside out. We need new hearts. That is not something the law can do for us. That's not something any number of rules and regulations can do for us. But this is where the good news of God's grace comes in. Our only hope and answer to sin is grace. Where God would do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Namely, forgive us of all of our transgressions and even make us righteous. And this is what God has done for us in his son, Christ Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that in his mercy and love, God sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for all of our unrighteousness. The law convicted us as transgressors, but he paid the law's penalty in full. And even on top of this, Jesus grants to us his own perfect righteousness, which we need if we're going to stand before God. He literally does for us everything we need, and he gives to us everything we need. And we access this grace gift of salvation just by faith in Christ alone. That's it. There's just faith in him alone. There's nothing else we can do. There's nothing we must do. This salvation is not about a new list of laws to keep. It comes by trusting in the Savior's finished work and nothing else. And this is the core of Christianity. This is the real message which sets the Christian faith apart from all others. And so it's essential that this gospel message be understood and then even guarded. We can't allow others to distort the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ apart from the works of the law. But there are many who would seek to distort that message. And that throughout church, church history, there have always been some who have distorted or altered the gospel. In fact, uh, attacks or modifications of the gospel have been going on since the church began. And this explains why we see the Apostle Paul going to such great lengths to both explain and also defend the true gospel. If the church is going to remain true and pure in his day and beyond, it means even ordinary Christians have to be able to discern between the true gospel and the false And this is why he writes much of his letters. And this is going to bring us back now to Colossians chapter 2. So you can take your Bibles and open them to Colossians chapter 2. The church at Colossae was young, but strong. And so in chapter 2 verse 5, Paul rejoices to see their good discipline, he says, and the stability of their faith in Christ. But he knows their faith will soon be challenged It appears a significant worldview clash was on the horizon. False teachers were hugely distorting the gospel, teaching contrary beliefs about salvation or spirituality or fullness. And so Paul writes to ward them off and warn the church about these falsehoods. His general warning comes in verse 8 of chapter 2. He says, see to it. That no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men. According to the elementary principles of the world. Rather than according to Christ. Paul's warning here is to not be taken captive by the world. The world pumps out its philosophy. And empty deception which is vain. It's futile. It's man-made. It's the blind leading the blind. 
Instead, we are to be captive, he says, to Christ. And Christ is the way, the truth, the life. He is the only answer to sin and and all of life's questions and problems. So after giving a general warning against falsehood in verse 8, in verses 9 through 15, Paul elaborates on why you should be taken captive by Christ. This is why you should instead just follow Christ alone. Verse 9, in him the fullness of deity dwells. Verse 10, in him we've been made complete. Jesus really is our sufficient Savior. He, He meets all of the needs we have. And so from there, Paul spells out three ways in particular that Jesus meets our real needs. And we have found already that Jesus is our answer to sin's power. Jesus is our answer to sin's penalty. And Jesus is our answer to sin's promoters, you might say. And these are powerful truths we've been exploring for weeks. And together they paint the positive portrait of Christ as a completely sufficient Savior. In light of this, we can safely put all of our our confidence and hope and trust in him to really do for us what we need, namely salvation. But Paul's not finished. And after giving a threefold positive picture of Christ's sufficiency, he's going to carry on by giving a threefold negative picture of, you might say, the world's insufficiency. So in other words, he's going to kind of come back now to warn against those false teachers. But now he's going to further explain what is wrong with their teaching and why you should not be taken captive by it. And the false teaching emerging in Colossae was, was very unique, as we've been learning. It appears that they were combining elements of Judaism, paganism, and Christianity. It's hard to tell for certain, but we know they accepted Jesus. But like all distortions of the gospel, they taught that Jesus was not enough. He's not the answer. At least he's not the only answer for salvation and for spirituality. You need something more. Now, Paul's already showed how, yes, Jesus is the only answer. He's supreme. He's sufficient. But now he's going to come back and add that, no, you don't need something more. And their alternatives really provide no answers at all. And specifically, finishing the chapter in verses 16 and 17, Paul will show how legalism is not the answer. In verses 18 and 19, how mysticism is not the answer. And then verses 20 through 23, how asceticism is not the answer. And these were the underlying philosophies behind their teaching. And look, today we will not encounter this unique brand of false teaching from the Colossian church. It's it's long gone. But the underlying distortions of legalism and mysticism and asceticism are still alive and well, and they still even show up in the church. And so we must continue to guard against them, deepening our belief in Christ alone. And that in Christ alone, we have all the answers we really need. So that's how this chapter ends. With the rest of our time today, we're just going to focus in on the, the first of these three warnings, verses 16 and 17. Legalism is not the answer. Legalism is not the answer. Let's, let's read that now, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Look at verse 16. 
He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So going to go through this. this is a short passage, but just to break it down for you, we'll give you a few points. It starts with the exhortation. The exhortation in verse 16. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. As Paul returns to pick apart the views of the false teachers, it begins with an exhortation to not let others judge you. It's kind of an interesting thing to say. You might expect them to say, like, don't judge one another. But here, the exhortation is to not let others judge you. Don't let other people sit in judgment over you. That certainly requires some explanation and qualification. This word for acting as judge is straightforward. It means just to pass judgment on someone, to criticize them, to find fault in them. It's a present active imperative than the negative, which just means that typically indicates this action was already taking place. It seems that others in Colossae were already imposing their judgments on these new Christians. Picture the false teachers and their followers looking at these, these Christians with their you know, faith in Jesus and saying, no, no, that, that's not enough. Yeah, we, we believe in Jesus too, but you need more. You, you have to do more. And these Christians didn't have more, and so they were judged. Now, before we talk more about this, I feel the need to, to briefly say what this verse is not saying. This verse is not saying that no one can ever act as your judge. We're going to see how this verse is a prohibition against letting those with unbiblical standards sit and judgment over us, and that's important. And we answer to God and his word, not man. But Paul is not suggesting here that believers are free from all scrutiny and judgment. You know, some might be tempted to look at a verse like this as a proof text and say, look, see, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. You can't tell me what to do. And there are some who distort verses like this as if they grant them immunity for their sin and rebellion. That is not what this is saying. And so just by way of a brief aside, you need to know that there's a right and wrong type of judgment in the church. There's a right and wrong place of judgment in the church. In one sense, we are called to judge one another. Not condemn, but to to judge and show sin. The Christ himself said in John 7, 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge... With righteous judgment. And also it was Jesus himself who commanded the church to take action when a brother or sister is caught up in sin but refuses to repent. In that case, the church is to render a a type of judgment by putting them out of the church in Matthew 18. I mean, the church does not wield the sword. So it's not like we kill those who are disobedient to God's word. But we cannot approve of their ongoing sin or be guilty by association. And so we must remove them. This is Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 5. There was this man who was caught in serious immorality. And he was unrepentant. The church, though, they thought they were being tolerant and loving 
but just doing nothing about it. You know, like, who are we to judge? But Paul said, wrong. And he rebuked them. And since this man has refused to repent of his sin, which is defined by the Lord, the church should have judged him long ago by removing him. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Nothing. But he says, do you not judge those who are within the church? Yes, we do. Those who are outside, God judges. Then he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Those outside the church, we don't judge, meaning it's not like it's, we're expecting unbelievers to live like Christians. We expect them to live like those in the world, and they are, you might say, out of our jurisdiction. When they do what is wrong, well, God will judge them. We entrust that to the Lord. But the one who claims Christ and is in the church, the Lord himself tells us to hold him or her accountable. Now, look, this judgment is only talking about unrepentant, ongoing sin. But hopefully you can see that there is a sense in which we must judge one another in love. But consider this problem. What if a person or a group or a church changes the definition of sin? I trust most of you would agree, for example, that if there's a person who's living in unrepentant adultery... That's a sin defined by the Lord himself. Well, that the church would be right to put that person out of the church. Again, we're only talking about ongoing unrepentant sin. But that would be an appropriate judgment for the church, right? Per Matthew 18, that person refuses to repent. But what if a church did the same thing over someone going to the movies? What if there's a church that deemed going to the movies sinful? I mean, just the act of sitting in a theater is considered worldly and therefore ungodly. You attend that church not knowing better. Someone finds out you went to the movies. In fact, you saw a rated R movie. So forget about it. As people in that church find out, you will be judged. This may be social judgment where you're ostracized or shunned. This may be spiritual judgment where you're rebuked and condemned a godless sinner. Or this may be church judgment where they just put you out of the church as if you're an unbeliever. What would you make of that? I hope you would run from such a church, but it goes to show that there's definitely a wrong type of judgment in the church. And the church in America especially is, there's been no shortage of the wrong type of judgment. And so there is a right type of judgment, which we must exercise, given by the Lord himself, we're not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But at the same time, we must guard against a wrong type of judgment. And that wrong type of judgment really boils down to the standard of judgment. Who sets the standard of right and wrong? Who defines sinful behavior? The obvious answer should be just the Lord, God, his word. There's no other standard, just God does. But more than a few down throughout the ages have added to that standard, just modified that standard. They've added their own two cents, from Jews to Christians. They have taken areas where the Lord is silent in his word, and they've added their own color commentary. The problem, though, is when that color commentary turns into the new standard, 
that their commentary on the law, for example, becomes the new law. They've created a new definition of sin. And they now use that new standard, their own standard, as the measuring rod for who's saved, who's not saved, who's spiritual, who's not spiritual. This is, again, none other than the evil of legalism. And that is the type of judgment Paul is forbidding here in verse 16. So just to get this straight, he's not forbidding a right type of judgment in the church. He's rather forbidding a legalistic judgment. It's any judgment that's based on man's standard, not God's. And in such a case, we would be right to reject that judgment. You have that, that church or that Christian, they seek to condemn you for doing something that's, that's not in the Bible. It's not something scripture forbids, for example. Like we should always respond in humility and examine self. Like, am I sinning? Am I doing what is wrong? I don't, I don't want to sin against the Lord. But if you're not convicted by scripture, by God's authority in his word, well, reject that judgment. You would be right to do so. In fact, you must do so unless otherwise you would be falling prey and, and easily taken captive by a system of legalism itself. You know that Paul is here forbidding legalistic judgment becomes very clear as we continue on in the verse. So let's do that. Secondly, the elaboration. Secondly, the elaboration. After the exhortation to not let others judge them or hold them in contempt. Paul elaborates on what he means. And in particular, he gives five ways in which they were being judged. Five ways. It really boils down to two categories, though. Diet and days. Diet and days. Look at verse 16 again. He says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in regard to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. So these false teachers had assumed the role of determining who belongs to God's people and who doesn't. And they used these rules about diets and days as the determining factor. Now we have a rule for that. We would use faith in Christ as the determining factor, right? Who is in the people of God? Who's out? Like faith in Christ. That's it. But to them, if you don't observe this diet, and if you don't keep these days, you're out. You can probably already tell this is coming from a Jewish background. Just the simple fact uh, the Sabbath is mentioned makes this really clear. This is a common issue in the early church, from Rome to Galatia to here in Colossae. You have to realize it was a time of transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. From the people of God being ethnic Israel alone to the redeemed of all the nations in the church. And during this transition time, there's lots of misunderstanding. And that's why the apostles correct it in their letters. I'm sure you know how legalism was rampant in the Judaism of Christ's day. And they missed salvation even per the Old Testament and reduced the the religion of Judaism to just a system of works. This was based on God's law, and they added plenty of their own laws as well. These laws became the standard of salvation and spirituality. 
And you have to realize some of this legalism, just this culture of legalism, it bled into the church. And the first Christians, as you know, they were all Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And some of these Jews, they accepted Jesus as a type of Messiah figure, but they did not fully understand the gospel. They instead simply carried over the legalism of the Pharisees into the church. And they just applied a new set of rules and laws to Christianity. It's just just a, a new type of rule keeping. And then, of course, they sought to impose their rules on others, especially Gentile converts. They, they really missed the boat on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. They were still all about the works of the law. Those may look a little different. You throw a little Jesus in there, but they were still all about the works of the law. And salvation and spirituality was judged on whether or not you adhered to their works of the law. And one notorious issue among early Jewish Christians was circumcision. That the Judaizers and others believed that Gentiles had to, in keeping with the law, be circumcised to be saved. And you see that a lot in scripture. But another big issue was all those ceremonial type laws. From the Old Testament. Here we're talking about, you know, diet and days. And keeping a, keeping a strict diet and observing special holy days became a part of the Jewish identity. But some had confused these as means of salvation. And so, like, if you're going to be saved, you're going to be spiritual, if you're going to be accepted by God, you've got to observe this diet, of course. And you've got to keep these holy days. Otherwise, you're out. And so it appears that this form of legalism was rearing its head in Colossae. Now again, in Colossians, the false teachers here, it's very eclectic. It's a mixed blend of pagan thought, Christian thought, Jewish thought. But no one doubts the Jewish background to the false teaching in Colossians. And it's very clear here in verse 16 that they were judging other Christians Declaring them outsiders because they didn't keep this system of diet and days. Let's look at those a little more closely. He says in verse 16, No one is to act as your judge in regard to, first, food and drink. Food and drink. This almost certainly has in mind the, the Jewish dietary restrictions in the Old Testament. From Leviticus 11 to Deuteronomy 14. In the law, God delineated a strict diet for his people to observe. This had a purpose. This was merely to to make them separate, distinct from all the nations around them, that they would stand out. And so God divided animals between clean and unclean, and, well, you could only eat the clean ones. So most notably, they could eat cow and sheep and deer and goat, but not rabbit or pig. Fish were okay. Reptiles were not okay, which... That, that one makes sense, right? And some birds were clean, like doves. Others were unclean, like ravens. You know, by Christ's day, there are some Jews who just gave up on all meat altogether and all wine as well because they didn't want to even risk possible ritual contamination. They, they wanted no chance of eating or drinking something that could have been dedicated to an idol. And that, that might be the case here in Colossae. 
We don't know for sure. Later in the chapter, though, we hear the mantra of these false teachers. Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. We'll learn about their asceticism later, but in some significant way, they were imposing food and drink restrictions on these Christians and, well, judging them who fell short. It wasn't just diet, though. It was also the observance of days. And so Paul adds, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Again, the Jewish background here is is crystal clear. It's talking about the periodic holy days of Israel. First, the term festival was used to refer to the great annual festivals in Israel from Passover to Pentecost to Tabernacles, the annual festivals. The second term, new moon, marked Israel's monthly religious duties. Using a lunar calendar, the Jews were commanded to offer sacrifices on the new moon or the first day of the month. And then, of course, there's the Sabbath. And you know, that refers to their weekly holy day, day of rest and remembrance. So you see, annually, monthly, and weekly, these false teachers were clinging to a regime of observing holy days and then imposing them on the new Christians. If you are to be spiritual and part of God's people, you had better observe all these days as well. But you see now what Paul says. He says, no, don't let people judge you for this. These are not the the measure or the standard of salvation or spirituality. If someone is is judging you by these terms, that's legalism. So reject that judgment. It feels though we still need a bit more of an explanation because you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I get the type of legalism where we're not supposed to add our own rules and laws and impose them on others. Like, okay, that's clearly wrong. We're not making up rules. But, you know, some of these, these were like God's laws, right? Like the Sabbath, dietary restrictions, they're in the Old Testament. So how exactly are these wrong now? They used to be right. How is this still legalism? Well, Paul explains, since so we have number three, the explanation. Number three, the explanation. Let's go back to verse 16. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Why not? Well, verse 17, the explanation. He says, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Remember we said there's a right and a wrong type of judgment we must exercise in the church. And the Lord calls us to take sin seriously and help one another in our race to put off sin. But it really boils down to the definition of sin, right? And who sets the standard? God does, not man in his word. But you see here in verse 17, Paul is making clear that God's standard from the old covenant no longer applies. What was part of the standard for ethnic Israel is not the standard for the church. This is a very important concept to grasp. So let's go on explaining it. The problem with these issues of diets and days is that they belong to the old order, the old 
covenant, which was an era of shadows. But now Christ has come, so that era is over. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He's the substance to which the law pointed. And so now in him, the old law is made obsolete. It's replaced with the law of Christ, which is fitting for a new people he would be forming by faith in him. And specifically, Paul says these matters of diets and days are a mere shadow of what is to come. Notice he doesn't say these practices are outright evil or idolatrous. They're not. They're just merely a shadow of what is to come. Shadow is a perfect illustration of something that has no substance. Shadows are the indication of something else that has substance. The presence of a shadow merely indicates the presence of another object that has substance. And the object that casts the shadow is always greater than the shadow. Well, the law was the shadow. Jesus is the substance. The image of God in Christ is what casts the shadow of the law in the Old Testament. I know that that's abstract, but the point Paul is making is that everything in the old order was designed to anticipate and point forward to Christ. This is the main point of the book of Hebrews. By the way, I'll just, I'll read Hebrews 10.1. The author says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. You know, the law and ordinances, they, they can't save people because they can't transform people. They can't make you perfect. That's what we need. They're just a shadow. Shadows don't have power. Imagine the sun is setting and the shadow of a tall tree is approaching your house. And pretty soon that the shadow is going to hit your house. But you're not afraid because it's just a shadow. It can't shake your house. It can't knock your house down. It can't do anything. It's just a shadow. Now, if the real tree fell on your house, it'd be a different issue. Well, Hebrews is making the same point. The law is like the shadow. Jesus is like the tree. He's, he's the substance of it all. He's the fulfillment. He's the only one that can actually act and move on you and change you, not the law. And now what happens to the shadow when the substance comes? Jesus is the light of the world. And when the light comes, the shadow disappears. The law being fulfilled in him is made obsolete among Christ's new covenant people. I mean, after all, when the substance comes, why would you continue to focus on the shadow? That the greater thing is here. And you can picture a little girl waiting for her dad to come home from work. Evening comes, his car pulls up, so she runs to the front door or the window. And at first she can't see him. She can only see his long shadow cast by the setting sun. And the shadow gets bigger and bigger as he approaches from the driveway. The shadow is not her father. But it gives her an anticipation of her father's coming. But that lasts only a moment. Soon he rounds the corner and she sees him. And the moment she sees him, she stops thinking about his shadow. She's not looking at the shadow anymore. Doesn't really care about the shadow anymore. She has her father. And why would you keep paying attention to the shadow? And so it goes for the old covenant law. Christ has come. 
the substance, fulfilling it. So why keep focusing on the old? The new is here. Let me just briefly give you some ways in which Christ shows and is the fulfillment of the law and the old covenant. You could study this for weeks, but just about every aspect of the old covenant points to and finds its fulfillment in Christ. And take the holy days, for instance. They all prefigured him in some way. The annual Passover recalled how God delivered Israel from the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, which also became the means of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They were spared by the blood of the Passover lamb. But of course, we know, as 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, that Jesus is our greater Passover. He's the Lamb of God, slain to take away the sins of the world. Only in Christ does God pass over us in our sins. In fact, just read the book of Hebrews. You'll find how the whole sacrificial system pointed to Jesus. He is both our perfect, great, lasting high priest who intercedes and sacrifices for his people. And he's also the sinless, spotless sacrifice itself. He accomplishes a once-for-all day of atonement that his people might be forgiven forever. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, but the blood of the sinless Son of God can. And now by faith in him, we can enter into his rest And speaking of, Jesus fulfills the Sabbath too, bringing us into a greater rest. The Sabbath day itself pictured a time of rest for God's people who longed for deliverance from the curse. But Hebrews 4 says that in Christ, God has prepared a greater Sabbath for us. It says an eternal rest, meaning heaven. And again, only by faith in Christ do we enter that eternal Sabbath rest. When you just go down the list, you find all the elements of the old find their fulfillment in Christ. Even even the manna that came down from heaven to feed and save God's people in the wilderness is now Christ, the bread of life, who has come down from heaven to feed and save his people. And the dietary restrictions, those too are complete in Christ. They were designed to make God's people separate from the world and distinct and set apart. And that is still God's will for his people. But now we are set apart by our faith in Christ. That is what marks us off from the world and distinguishes us, our faith in Christ. And this helps explain why why Jesus himself declared all foods clean. Mark 7, 19. God's people are no longer defined and marked by the externals of the old, but now by faith in Christ. And really, that's what this is all about. What is it that marks God's people? What should be the determining factor for our fellowship? It's it's faith in Christ. It's, It's all about him. It's not up to us to redraw the circles of inclusion, judging others for superficial reasons. The substance of God's revelation is here in Christ And so we need to beware any who would put forth some program of salvation or spirituality that doesn't have Christ at its center. And this gets back to Paul's main concern for the Colossians. Whether it comes inside the church or outside, beware anyone who would diminish the sufficiency of Christ 
by making laws the basis of our relationship with him. Even in the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. Salvation has always been by faith. This only comes into sharper focus now that Christ has come. And so learn today this call to truly understand and then beware of the danger of legalism, which looks to rules and ultimately self to answer the problem of sin. But legalism is not the answer, never has been. Only Christ and faith in him is the answer. And I have to tell you that this lesson, it applies probably more than you think. Now, legalism has two big forms. One type of legalism is all about imposing man-made rules on others and judging them by your own standard. And so that's the Pharisees adding all of these laws to God's law and judging others based on it. Or you think of American history, all these churches who made a new set of laws and judged people who fell short. No drinking, no dancing, no smoking, no dating, no watching movies. You can make arguments against some of these things and discernment is needed. But we have to stop short of making new laws and then passing judgment on Christians who don't keep our laws, which aren't actually in the Bible. That's one form of legalism. But there's a second form of legalism. We hear less about it, but it emerges in our text today. And it's all about misappropriating God's old law, misappropriating God's old covenant law. This was the Judaizers of the early church, and it's carried on throughout church history. This type of legalism has really stumbled many people. So many people, they just don't know what to do with the Old Testament and all of its laws. There's a lot, 613. What do we do with all that? Well, we don't cut the Old Testament out of the Bible. It's all God's inspired word, and it's all profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. So we still need it. But the Old Covenant no longer directly applies to the New Covenant Church. We are under the law of Christ now. What that means is you, you still need to beware of those who would misappropriate the old law and hold it over you. That is another form of legalism to beware, as we've seen today. And if you think this issue is long gone, you'd be mistaken. Consider a few examples. Have you ever been judged by a fellow Christian or made to feel guilty for working on a Sunday? Have you been told that working on a Sunday is a sin? It's not. Understand, Sunday is not a new Sabbath. The Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ. And yes, by the example of the first Christians, Sunday is our new day of, our primary day of corporate worship. We're to worship every day. Sunday is our our day of corporate worship. We gather together in remembrance, and that's great. But where does it say Sunday is our new day of rest? Can you show me a verse on that that will tell you that, that we have a new Sabbath? It's just on Sunday now. And should we observe, therefore, rest from Saturday sundown to Sunday sundown? Because that's what the Sabbath was, right? Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. So I guess you can't work Saturday nights as well. But no, the old form of a day of rest was fulfilled. It no longer directly applies. So if you have to work on a Sunday, you're not sinning. Don't let others sit in judgment on you for that. 
It's a type of legalism. They're misappropriating the old law. Now, of course, the law of Christ tells us to prioritize gathering with the saints and the local church and our corporate gatherings on a Sunday. We should do that. We should want to do that from a new heart. We're going to try and make time to be with the saints on a Sunday. But working on a Sunday is a matter of liberty, not law. The same goes for tithing. Has anyone ever convicted you for not offering a full 10%? Have you ever been made to feel guilty for giving, I don't know, 5% or less? Have you been judged for this? That would be wrong. The tithing laws were for theocratic Israel. They were part of the old covenant. They do not directly apply to the church. There is no command anywhere for the Christian under Christ to give or tithe 10%. Now again, the law of Christ tells us to give. We give now by principles of the heart. We give joyfully, willingly, sacrificially, freely. And out of a new heart and love for Christ, we want to give. But there's no law over us dictating the percentage. Whether you give 5% or 25%, you let your love for Christ and his people be your guide. This is liberty, not law. And finally, believe it or not, there's a movement of kosher Christians on the rise. And many of them are not coming from a Jewish background. They believe that God's word gives us a supernatural diet. They advocate the Old Testament food restrictions because they believe that's actually God's secret blueprint to a healthy lifestyle and kind of wholeness and all that stuff. Look, if you want to observe the Old Testament dietary restrictions on your own, You can. You have the liberty to do that to yourself. But the second you impose that on others and judge them who fall short, you've now stepped into legalism. Beware. So like I said, these issues aren't over. The Colossian heresy is long gone, but the legalism behind it still rears its ugly head. And so learn to always watch out for it because it's not the answer to sin. The law has no power to restrain the flesh. No amount of external rules will ever conform us to Christ or perfect us. And to the contrary, legalism simply lets loose another greater sin, pride. What the church really needs, if it's going to actually grow in holiness, is just more of Christ and greater faith in him. Because he is our answer to sin. We're not a lawless people. We still have a law. It's the law of Christ. We have a right and wrong. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so on. But even still, law is not the basis of our relationship with God. Christ is. The gospel of grace says that the only way we are fully accepted by God is is not by keeping some rules. It's just because of Christ. He kept the rules. He died for all the rules we broke. He paid for them. So now just by clinging to him by faith, we're accepted. And that's by grace as well. That's the only way to guard against anyone who would diminish the gospel of grace and say otherwise. And finally, do you know what this means? It also means for us who have received this saving grace by Christ, it means we're going to have to extend that same grace to others. Make sure you are not the one who's in the wrong by judging the person next to you because they don't conform to your standard or or the old law 
You know, the line in the sand is this. Does the person sitting in the pew next to you confess Jesus Christ as his or her Lord and Savior? If so, they're your brother or sister. They are with you. So treat them with grace, not law. Legalism has only ever divided, but grace unites. And God is glorified when his people come together united as one. And what unites us? Just the fact that we are all a bunch of sinners, guilty, convicted, lawbreakers, but we have been saved and transformed and renewed, forgiven by grace in Christ. We are all just those united by saving grace. Let's remember that and guard that unity in the gospel. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we we thank you for this grace, this amazing grace, which is the answer to sin. It's the answer to legalism. It's the answer to the law. Your law is good. Your commandments are all good and just. They reflect your perfections, Lord, but it's simply a mirror into our soul that we are not good. The law shows us we, we are not good. Only one is good, the Father in heaven. We fall very far short of your standard of perfect righteousness, but in your grace and mercy, you sent the Savior to come and die for us and rise again for a people who are not good, but that they might be made good, made perfect. And that's just, a, it's a gift. It's a great gift to those who don't deserve it. It's received by faith in Christ alone. And that is glory right there. For any this morning who have not received that gift that is offered to them, that you would humble them and show them that the only means of being right with you is not keeping some rules. And Christianity is not just a new set of laws. Their only way in is through the door of Christ. And I pray that you would send them through that door and cause them to believe. And for all of us, may we magnify the gospel of grace in our hearts this morning. And just leave thankful that it's not up to us in our effort to, to gain entry into heaven or, or to maintain it even. We are saved and sanctified and glorified just by grace. It's an amazing grace. We want to sing it. We want to thank you for it and live in light of it every day. We praise you, Lord, for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.